Welcome to Great Minds, and our guest today is a reunion with an old friend. We haven't seen each other in a long time. With us today is the Chief Marketing Officer of LG Ad Solutions. He is on the front lines of one of the most interesting areas of the business, that convergence of the brand world and advanced TV, smart TV, connected TV, uh, doing incredible things at LG. And our guest today is the great Tony Marlowe. So welcome, Tony. Matt, it is uh, so good to see you again. It has literally been years, and uh, hopefully we can have some fun today. Absolutely. So, Tony, you hail from one of my favorite cities in the world, uh, Sydney, Australia. We've been lucky enough to have Advertising Week down there since 2018. Uh, I get to go there a couple times a year. I think Sydney Harbor is the most beautiful, and I come from New York. I'm very much a pro my hometown but I think you'd be hard for, hard pressed to find a harbor more beautiful than what they have in Sydney between the Harbor Bridge and the Opera House and the skyline and the backdrop. And, you know, I love how they use their waterfront. It's such a, a, a vital part of the transportation system in Sydney. And we went down there, Tony, because Australia and Sydney uh, and Melbourne in particular really over-index on impact in creative industry globally. And I'd love to get your take on that notion and just start our conversation by talking a little bit about your hometown, that wonderful city of Sydney. Yeah, wow. Well, firstly, I've, I've got to be honest, I wasn't necessarily expecting that question, but I think it's a great one. Um, and it's something I've thought about. I mean, I, I will say I feel very lucky to have lived in some beautiful places. I've lived in Sydney. I've lived in New York. Nowadays, I spend most of my time in Florida um, in the West Palm Beach area. And, and I think Everywhere has something really special to offer. Um, certainly, the places that, that that I've had had the good fortune of living in. But to your question, this is something I've thought about a bit, particularly when I first moved from Australia to the US. Um, I remember one of the things, and and you, you probably recall it was Yahoo who brought me over from Australia. I was working at Nielsen Online. Yahoo brought me over to to run the thought leadership programs there in New York. I remember noticing how specialized the US corporate culture was like people would specialize in it and they would go deep in one sliver of expertise whether that would be you know demand generation whether as a marketer as opposed to being a marketing generalist and I, so in the context of your question the thing that I always thought about was the vast population difference between a country like the US I believe we're somewhere north of 325 million right now Versus somewhere uh, like Australia, um, the last time I checked, it was somewhere around 25 million, maybe a little north of that nowadays, but huge population difference. And I think what you get out of countries like Australia is a more generalist mentality to your professional approach, meaning it's not that I'm necessarily deep in one sliver, but I'm going to try and become proficient in a number of things within my discipline. Um, so less I'm a demand generation specialist in the example I used and more I'm a marketer. I'm a full stack marketer. Um, and I'm just using that as one example. I actually think it's pretty true regardless of what you do. And then you, you even look at countries like New Zealand where they're in the single digit millions in terms of population. And I think it's even more true for countries like that. And so you talked about it in the context of creativity. I think about it in the context of, you know, being forced to see the forest for the trees, being, being forced to take a bigger picture approach um, to what you do. And so, you know, that that's just a hypothesis, but it is something I've thought about in the yeah, past. I, I think it's a good hypothesis. And, you know, a number of years ago, uh, I had occasion to go to Havana, 
we were actually trying to do uh, an event, like a sort of like a mini advertising week in Havana, Cuba during that window when Obama was president and there was sort of detente for the first time since, you know, before the revolution in 1959 uh, with Cuba. And, you know, in our industry, Tony, we see people love to throw around the word innovation, right? It, it rolls yeah. off people's tongues, you know, as if you're, you know, having your morning coffee. <laughs> and, and I remember in Havana, you know, that imagery that we all have of those 1950s American cars still running and being very prominent in Havana yeah. is, com is completely true. Everywhere you go, you see those 1950s Ford, Chevys, you know, a number of American automotive brands that are no longer around and they're all, you know, working. And yeah. they don't, not only can you not get car parts for those, uh, that era vehicles in America, but there's a trade embargo between Havana and uh, between Cuba and America. So they really can't get the parts. And yet somehow they figure out ways to make, you know, car parts out of coffee cans. And yeah. to me, that's real innovation. And I think very much along the lines of what you were talking about in Australia and New Zealand, where out of necessity, you have to have multiple skill sets. You can't afford, if you will, to be a one lane niche specialist. So I think your answer was pretty great. That's that's interesting. And it's, I, I'm fascinated by the fact you brought Cuba up and I promise I'm not going to get political. But the, in, in, in the same vein of what, what you're talking about, I remember seeing, I think it was a Vice news piece. It was an in-depth piece. And along with the embargo between US and Cuba um, included a lot of medical stuff. So a lot of the medical research that the pharmaceutical companies and most pharmaceutical companies are either US giants or European giants. Um, they invest heavily in research. They develop treatments, medicines, et cetera. Um, but they were choked off from a huge portion of that. And so they were forced to create their own medicine, their own pharmaceutical programs. And actually, Cuba has developed some cancer drugs, anti-cancer drugs that the U.S. has not built. And it's because they pursued their own path. And so it was really fascinating to see, you know, not only is the innovation in, in the form of you know, getting scrappy, making it, making do with what you have, but also forging their entire own industry that a company, uh, excuse me, that a country of that population probably ordinarily would not. And it's a, it's a fascinating example. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting place. I hope that things calm down uh, mm -hmm. and we can go back there. I was there three times and we were actually, it's a pretty good story. We were doing something with Fast Company when Bob Safian was running it. Bob and I were okay. really close. And there was a moment, Fast Company still prominent, but there was a moment eh, probably 10 years ago when Fast Company was really hot. Yep. And um, we were doing it as partners down there. We had great people committed to come speak. We had Tiger Woods. We had Mark Cuban. We had Jessica Alba. We were going to do it at the Nacional Hotel, which is the iconic hotel. Yeah, we, were, yeah. we were taking over the Tropicana for a night, which goes back to 1939. And when you're there and you see the big stage show with the big bands and the, you know, the beautiful dancers and the handsome men and the costumes and the colors, you really see exactly, exactly, Tony, of how the mafia thought of Las Vegas. It all goes back to Havana and to Cuba. And, oh, and we got really close. And to me, it was like, a, I'm a big Godfather fan. And it was a real kick to be the first American to pull off doing something big in Cuba. 
since 1959. Like I just thought that to myself, you know, that that was kind of cool. And we made a deal with one of the ministries and basically what we were doing, the way it worked there from a business vantage point is we were writing one check to the government. It was about a million and a half dollars. And that was for all the hotel rooms, all the F and B, all the production, all the uh, airport ground transfers, everything. And we were literally a couple days away from wiring the money. We had two planes from JetBlue. We were going to use to fly everybody down there. And then Castro died. And the Mm. whole thing ground to a halt. Had we wired the money, we never would have gotten it back. And then the whole thing just cratered and Trump got in and, you know, he kowtowed to the Miami Cuban expats and, you know, and, and all of it stopped and the relationship has not been the same since that little window. But it was a pretty cool, pretty cool story. And, and I loved going and I would love to go back. I love that. And I'll, I'll, I'll make it a little lighter. I have to ask you, if you, if you don't know, I'm a, I'm a bit of a dance fan. Did you do a Cuban salsa in, on any of your three trips? Well, well, you well, I will tell you that what brought us down was a dear friend of mine from the entertainment business, uh, still dear friends, Eddie Mycone. Eddie and I met when he was EVP of Radio City many, many years ago. Uh, and really pioneered the evolution of the Super Bowl halftime from, you know, something that was inconsequential. Eddie did when Michael Jackson played the Super Bowl and uh, a lot of other great, great, you know, artists were all booked and uh, produced by Radio City and Eddie and his team. And what brought us down there was Eddie was doing a show uh, with Isak Delgado, who's still around a very prominent Cuban musician, uh, and Santiago, who was the choreographer at the Tropicana way back when. And the show was called, you're going to love this, Tony, Salsa Mamba, Salsa Mambo Cha Cha Cha. And (laughs) and that was the show. And we did go to some of the rehearsals. It was great. You know, the Cuban dancers, the men and women are incredibly talented. Salsa Mamba Cha Cha Cha. I didn't think we'd talk about that, Tony. But uh, no, I I did not. But that would be, uh, and and I love meeting uh, Isak and I have stayed friends. And uh, and I love that time spent with he and uh, Santiago. I'll see if I can dig up that picture and send it to you. But oh, it was it, it, it was it. it was something. Okay, let's move on. Let's get at it. Let's get out of Cuba. So you uh, go to a great school in Australia, the National University, and a major in arts and psychology. Uh, I'd love to talk about how that academic background. My background was political science and sociology. But I find that that background can be very influential. You end up going into a business largely tech-driven in many ways, uh, but with a very different academic background. Yeah, so I I was at both the Australian National University and then also the University of Wollongong. Um, For my undergraduates, I did a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology and then a Bachelor of Commerce with a focus on marketing. I I later did a, a Master's of Strategic Marketing. Um, and it's funny, I was telling this story to someone the other day, but my my friends used to lovingly rib me and say that I was training to be evil. They were like, oh, you're doing marketing and psychology? And I was like, well, no, no, that's not the goal here. But but I do think that, you know, having a curiosity about the way, what makes people tick, which is which is how I view psychology, it really is a curiosity. Um, I think people people think of it in a different way, but... I've always been fascinated by how things work and by how how people react to situations. And psychology, you know, studying it for a few years gives you a window into that. And then, 
you know, when you find yourself in the role of, you know, trying to create and deliver product services to people, being able to empathize, put yourself in the in the user situation, in the client situation, I think is very helpful. So, you know, f- for me, I, I am an absolute academic nerd. I still, you know, read research papers, particularly if they're, they're psychologically related. Um, I'm fascinated with things like, you know, what why are first impressions so pervasive, whether you're talking about a literal ad impression or the impression from, from meeting someone. Um, and there's a lot of research to indicate that even the context, whether it's the context of an ad or the context of meeting someone influences how you perceive that person or item. So you could, you know, there's a lot of research to show that um, for, for advertising, delivering the exact same ad in a variety of scenarios will yield different perceptions, yield different results. And the same is true at the human level. Like if, if I meet you at the bar, I might view you differently than if I meet you in a professional context or if I meet you in a, you know, a, a semi-social context, say like within a religious community, they're really different scenarios and they change the way I view you. So from my background, I think it forces me to think about things like that a little more deeply than I might otherwise naturally do. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a great uh, answer. And, you know, for me, I think sociology, which in many ways sort of teaches you how stuff works in the most fundamental mm-hmm. way, um, you know, has been a great uh, inadvertent background. Uh, and uh, I'm glad we touched on that. So, yeah, begin your career working in strategy at Jones Donald and then move on to Nielsen, where you had a really good run uh, mm-hmm. around research and rising up at a pretty young age to research director. Talk about that background and how that sort of set the foundation for a great run at Yahoo, which is where we met, and then on from there. Yeah, you know, like there's no way I can can in, engage in this conversation without dating myself. So it's going to happen, caveat that. Um, but I, I was really lucky when I, you know, working for that strategic consultancy, I believe they've, they've subsequently been acquired and renamed, but at the time it was Jones Donald Strategy Partners. Um, what, what was really cool about that is I had an opportunity to engage in some very early stage tech and media projects. So and when I say early stage, I mean, that was the point in time where we were working with major telcos in the, in Australia, um, think you know maybe like the the Verizon's or the AT and T's, but the Australian version of really trying to help consumers realize why they might want the internet on their phone, right? Like, can you even imagine that now, where we're all glued to that glass that's in our hand? Um, then it was not so natural. It was something where it was like, here's the value, here's here's why you should care about this thing. Um, so that's that's really where I first first got a taste for digital media. And so I transitioned from Jones Donald into what it was actually called net ratings at the time. Um, it was acquired by Nielsen, became Nielsen net ratings. When it, by the time I left, they were they were called Nielsen online. Nowadays, I think it's just rolled into the to the overall media division. But what was really cool is we were much more startup than the Nielsen brand would suggest. And really, like my, my time there is kind of how I ended up at Yahoo. Uh, I don't know if you know, but like when I was there as a part of a a pretty fantastic team, we invented a new way to measure the impact of online advertising. Um, You know, by today's standards, I would, I would openly say, look, it was pretty rudimentary, but by the the standards back then, we thought it was pretty nifty. So I was traveling a lot between Sydney and and New York to Nielsen's headquarters, um, really trying to showcase how we could take this global showcasing how this could unify the approaches 
Because for Nielsen at that point of time, the, the way they were doing it in Europe was different to how they were doing it in the US, was different to how they were doing it in APAC. And this, this tool possessed the ability to unify the way it was done globally. And so I was I was involved in those conversations, but essentially I was on one of those trips. A mutual friend introduced me to this guy, Edwin Wong, who I, I, I know you know, um, super smart guy. He worked at, at Yahoo. We had a coffee and it was only, it was some weeks later, I was living and working in New York uh, for Yahoo, running the thought leadership program. So I started Yahoo in, in that thought leadership role. And when I left, um, I was running the the B2B marketing. Ostensibly, I was the B2B CMO. Um, and so I was there for maybe an eight, eight and a half year period. From there, I went to Data Axel as CMO. I went to IAS as CMO. We, we took that company public in the summer of 21. And now uh, I'm at LG Ad Solutions and just so happy to be in that connected television space. Let's go back and you talked about sort of early progressive ways to measure. Mm -hmm. And the topic of measurement, cross-media measurement on a global basis, huge topic for groups like the World Federation of Advertisers, you know, here in the States, the ANA, the 4As, the IAB, uh, very, very hot topic. Give us your take on sort of where we were and the journey along that digital evolution revolution of measurement. Yeah, and, and I'll just caveat this. When we talk about measurement, I think it's possible to go down a couple of lanes. You can go down currencies, um, you know, viewership levels, et cetera. I think we can we can put that on the shelf for this conversation. What I find really interesting is measurement related to outcomes of advertising. So essentially answering the question, did my campaign work or did this portion of my campaign work harder than the rest of it? And so what I think is, you know, even though the capabilities have evolved a lot since the period of time I spoke about, I think the unifying thing over time, and I, I can't see a world where this changes, is you need to know the objectives of a campaign. What are you actually trying to achieve? Are you trying to elicit downloads or installs? Are you trying to drive foot traffic into a store? Are you trying to drive sales online or offline? Are you trying to move the needle on brand? Is it is it trying to drive awareness or favorability? And answering that question, what are my objectives, is, is like your North Star for choosing what the appropriate measurement can be. And then even within that, there can be various ways to measure that. So take brand impact, for example. You know, we're staring down the barrel of a cookie-less world, certainly for Chrome browser. Um, the way it was traditionally done was very cookie-based. You would drop a cookie, the cookie signifies someone has seen your ad within digital environments that becomes your exposed group for any research that's laid over the top of that. We're now going to be forced to do it in much more sophisticated ways than was traditionally done. So I think the nuts and bolts of how it's done are going to continue to evolve. But the basic premise is you need to answer the question, did we achieve our objectives? Um, and then, you know, take that in. The next step is to sort of go down an attribution path. So first step is, did it work? And then the next step is to say, well, we did all of these things as a part of a holistic campaign, which were the parts that had an outsized impact, maybe which were the underperforming components, and then adjust accordingly. And I think that is where we're on trajectory for. And then even, even here at LG Ad Solutions, we have for some time um, offered the ability to buy media on an outcomes basis, meaning we say, tell us your outcomes, and then we will create a pricing package um, to account for what you're trying to do, whether that that is... You know, maybe you're one of the streaming platforms and you're trying to drive downloads of your app onto TVs. 
we can price it so that it is outcomes based. And I think that's a really healthy approach for the, for the industry. And do you think we can ever get where people want us to get to in terms of meaningful cross-media measurements? Oh, hard to, it's a tongue twister, Tony. Cross-media <laughs> measurement. Do you think we'll really get there or is this something that's going to sort of remain elusive? You know, I think it will continue to advance and advance. Um, you know, like saying right now that it's pretty good is different from saying we're at the finish line. We're not. We're, we've made a tremendous amount of progress. I think as an industry, we should actually be proud yet there's still more work to be done. I mean, when will we get there? I don't know. I think this is the kind of thing where the landscape changes so rapidly that what we're targeting to build for now might be different to what we're targeting to build for in two years. So I think it's very likely that the landscape is is evolving at such a rapid pace that we're always chasing a moving finish line. And I think that's fine, right? Like as an industry of innovative people that try to build innovative things, I think that's okay to always be working towards that. But What's also interesting, because we're talking about it right now in the context of measurement, but a lot of the same technology that goes into measurement also goes into the initial targeting of ads. And I think that, you know, particularly within connected TV environments, one of the really cool things is it's for a user, it's the sight, sound and motion that we've always loved about television and television advertising but it's the addressability and accountability and measurability that we've always loved around digital. And I view like connected TV as the best of both worlds there. Um, does it interface well with, you know, some of the other media, I think particularly traditional linear television, I think has different measures of success. Um, and I think as the industry evolves, we're going to have to unify how we look at success across um, different slivers of a media campaign. Such a such a rich tapestry. So I want to get to what's going on at LG Ed Solutions and your role there. We joined them, I think, just a little over a year ago. But let's talk about Lisa and the great team at Integral Ad Science. Okay. Uh, I love that company, uh, Lisa Uchneider, who we met uh, when she was with Yahoo. I imagine that's when you may have met her. Um, terrific, terrific leader and a really terrific company. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky to have been in the trenches with her. We did meet at Yahoo. She was the chief revenue officer at the time um, while I was running the B2B marketing function. So we were we were very much in the trenches together. She, and In fact, I had a pretty short stint at Data Axel. I was there for 10 months, maybe, maybe slightly under. And it was actually, we were doing some really cool things there. I loved that, that role. Uh, that company is a really cool company. But Lisa called me one day and we had a coffee and, and you know, as they say, the offer was too good to refuse um, to get back on that back on that rodeo with her. And so we did the thing at IAS, you know, we really transformed the company from, you know, I don't know if you've ever read the book Crossing the Chasm, um, where it's almost like the product marketing version of that professional concept of what got you here won't necessarily get you there, meaning that all the things in the early phase of a company that make you successful and get you to that middle ground and not the same things that transform that company from a successful startup into a scaled business. And so we were taking it from that middle point into a successful scaled business. And I, I've not been at the company now for more than a year, maybe like 14, 15 months as we record this. Um, but I, I still watch from afar. They're, they're very successful. You know, IPOing uh, that company in the summer of 21 is definitely a career highlight. And I'll always be thankful for the opportunities that, you know, were afforded my way, you know, working alongside and, and under, under Lisa. So I had a, a tenure at Yahoo right when we were beginning Advertising Week. Our first uh, corporate partner was Yahoo. 
And mm-hmm. it was during the Terry Semmel, uh, Jerry Yang was still very prominent in the company, people like Dan Rosenzweig and Wenda and Jerry. And it became an unbelievable farm system for talent. And this was goes back now to 2005, six, seven. You were there uh, significantly later than that. Um, well, I guess you started in 10, so not that much further in there about eight years. Yahoo became, I think, Tony, the most prolific farm system of talent than any other company in the business. What do you think it was about Yahoo and what's your take on that? Agree, disagree, and you can certainly disagree with me. No, I agree. I, I You know, you would know this. Uh, maybe some of your listeners don't, but when you work at Yahoo, you talk about bleeding purple. Um, and I, I don't know many companies where the employee base just, for better or worse, loves their company. And that certainly for the period I was there was true for the whole time. And we were there for a pretty interesting period, right? Like I went through a few CEOs, um, even the way Marissa May was introduced into the business. It was like, you know, not boring. It was certainly an interesting period of time, but the employee base always loved the company. And I would say the alumni network out of Yahoo is astonishing. You just bump into people from all over the ecosystem now People are so successful. You you know, so many CEOs or CXOs um, have Yahoo in their resume. And it's one of those things. I, uh, you know, in terms of why it's hard to explain, but that love does exist. And the camaraderie of anyone who's been, who's been at that company, I think you feel it. Whether, whether or not your time overlapped or not, like if you're, if you're a Yahoo, you're, you're always a Yahoo. Yeah, I think you're right. I think there was a real affinity for the company from people that work there they really did some hatchet job. Uh, I mean, they had a series of CEOs, you know, that were wildly unsuccessful and yet they couldn't kill the thing. There's still almost a billion people a day on the platform and they've been a great supporter of ours. I happen to like Elizabeth Herbst Brady and her team, uh, EHB, I think does a great job and uh, um, remain a big fan. And I certainly hope they can figure it out, but they've had some real, interesting it's there's a whole book to be written there about those who occupied the c-suite of yahoo you know from in that 10-year period or so i i think you're right in fact one may have been written but um yeah i i remain a big fan i i'm always sort of cheering from afar and i think it's really interesting to see where they were going to take it obviously they offloaded some of the ssp assets there yeah um really focusing in on the demand side. And I, I don't know, I'm really interested to see where this goes. I do think focusing in, in on that demand side and, and on the tech side of things is probably beneficial for the business, as well as just recognizing the value of some of those O&O properties. Like Yahoo Finance is still a juggernaut. It's yeah, you know, I, no, very I check much it so. on the regular. Yahoo Mail is still prominent. So I don't know, I'm cheering from afar and I'm really interested to see where they take it next. Yeah, interesting stuff. So talk about the journey to LG. How'd you get there? Yeah, that's a good question. I guess it's not unrelated to, you know, we talked about my time at IAS. Um, What I didn't mention was for for the period I was there, it was a private equity owned business, uh, Vista Equity Partners. Uh, For your listeners who are not familiar, they are like the best of the best. Such, they know exactly what they're doing, such good partners. Um, we, we were really lucky with, with the people we were aligned with, uh, uh, you know, from a board level, from a, from an oversight level. Um, but, but essentially it was, you know, a long story short, I would say mission complete. We were brought in to do that thing, to sort of take the company to the next level. 
Um, and there were, were a couple of us on, on the exec team where we did it, mission complete. It really afforded us a little bit of time to also think about, well, what do I want next, right? Like I've done the thing here. I do have the opportunity to, to stay around or I have the opportunity to think about what's, what's my next step. And I remember just kind of, you know, sitting around, I think I was just kind of having a coffee in a cafe one day, just really thinking about what I want next. And I, I landed on this notion that all of the data indicated that CTV and, and particularly ad supported CTV was what was next. All of the attention was flowing to connected television. We, we know this, we know that the pandemic was an accelerator for adoption of that, that behavior. And then what was starting to happen around that time, I was thinking about what comes next was the beginnings of adoption of ad supported CTV. And so I remember thinking, this is the space I want to be in. And as chance had it, I had the opportunity to, to meet with the executive team at LG Ad Solutions. We, you know, we hit it off, we sort of shared vision, we shared perspective. Um, and I was really lucky that that opportunity arose and I was able to kind of realize what I thought was a good place for me. And you know, as I said, I've been I've been here 12, 14 months now, and I love it. C CTV is such a cool space to be in, particularly for this moment in time. Absolutely fantastic. And and it's got to be interesting to work for a global powerhouse like LG uh, and to be part of a business that I think this broad recognition is important and growing, but on the flip side, not the core business of the company. Yeah, you know, the, the parent uh, LG Electronics, I, I think what's it's just really cool. Like, so what I would say is on, on the LG Ad Solutions side, as well as, uh, you know, on the parent side, we share a vision to transform TV. And what I mean by that is TV was once this passive, just happens to you kind of a medium. Like you sit back, sure, you can change the channels, but really you're not in control. And right now... And into the future, television has become something that is a much more immersive experience. So it's like, sure, you've got on-demand content, but there's also things like cloud gaming baked straight into your television. There are, there are um, shoppable moments, whether that's shoppable within the ad units on your TV or shoppable within the content experience. And there was actually a really cool example. That's not an LG example, but there was a cool example with Walmart um, recently they built a whole program that was shoppable. Every every actor was wearing an item of clothing that could be shoppable, the furniture, shoes, everything. And I think we're going to see the next version of television, maybe not necessarily as overt as that, but it's going to seamlessly blend what, what the user wants with the content and the ads. And then the last thing I would say is that there's also a blurring of what television even means. Um, and you and I were talking about this uh, under separate cover, but... Um, recently, there was a, a big deal announced between LG Electronics and Hyundai um, to put LG screens, passenger screens in these automobiles. And when you think about the future, even, even like autonomous vehicles or driverless cars, like that's a piece of it. But even before that, we're now starting to see these screens appear in non-traditional environments, fast services, so free ad-supported streaming television. Our fast service is LG channels. There's 300 plus channels. It's it's almost like a cable-like experience, but it's ad-supported. If you're watching that content in your car, that is a, an entertainment experience that's not in your living room. And so I think we're, we're seeing a future where even the definition of what television means is completely changing. So that's the cool thing about being a part of a company like that, that values innovation, 
the values leaning into being a platforms business and has this deep heritage in building electronics. So you, you threw off something. I'm going to take us down a side road for a moment. 300 some odd channels. Yep. Talk about that because that's one of the, I think, big G, I didn't know that's about LG and about that CTV world in particular. Yeah, there's so much to talk about here. Um, so one thing I would say, and and I must admit, I've used this soundbite before, but your grandma can buy an LG TV and the moment it's connected to the internet, it just works. You don't need a subscription. Um, sure, you can add subscriptions, you can add a cable box, but LG channels just works the moment that thing is plugged into the wall and has the internet. You've got the channels. It is an experience that people are used to. It's it's much like ad-supported television that, that you've seen before. Um, and it's free. And what's interesting is, and this is a concept that we call the big shift, what I'm about to explain. Um, we started to talk about it before, but there was a there was a period really coinciding with the with the onset of the pandemic where there was a, a hockey stick of growth related to, to streaming consumption. So there was maybe a three-month period where we saw what would have otherwise been three, four, five plus years of behavioral change. People started watching a lot of content, a lot of streaming content. But what's interesting is now, and really, you know, over the last six months or so as well, but now and into the future, there's this second phase of the big shift that's happening. And that's people leaning into the ad-supported models. So the initial adoption was really mostly subscription-based. So I like to think the original version of Netflix, you pay your fee, you get your content, there's no ads. Now, people are saying words to the effect of, oh, gee, I, I have a lot of subscriptions. The cost of this is adding up. I want more content, but I don't want to pay more. So they're leaning into these free options. And what's interesting is we're, our latest data indicates that 80% in the US, 80% are using some form of ad-supported television. And the thing that really blew my mind is over 6 in 10 at 63% actually prefer the free ad-supported streaming version. So fast channels like LG channels are being embraced and being embraced in numbers. And incredible growth in a very short period of time. I mean, I would think even since you joined last January, the growth must be out of this world. Yeah, it's tremendous. And, and you think about footprint. So for us, we have the footprint of approximately 200 million LG TVs worldwide, approximately 35 million in the US. That is a lot of people and a lot of a lot of TVs. Um, I would also say like, when we get into this territory, I, I like to just remind people that connected TV is not really your grandmother's TV. And what, what I mean by that is that the television of 30, 40 years ago well, was one thing. And it's like now, sure, we have the 15s, we have the 30s. That is something that exists. But we also have these new units. We call them native units, uh, ads that appear within your home screen, and they might help you with your discovery process. Um, so, for example, we recently had a successful campaign um, related to the Barbie movie. It, that's front and center and present. The moment you turn it on helps you discover the content. It's it's useful. Um, layer over the top of that, some of the things you can do with data. So we, with the traditional TV, it was really what I like to call a spray and pray approach, meaning that you knew there was a vast amount of wastage for any media plan. You knew your target audience was XYZ, and there was going to be a lot of folks that fell outside of who you were trying to connect with. With CTV, it's a much more digital-like uh, experience where you can ensure your ads are served to who you're trying to serve them to. And you can even use data to inform how they get served. And, 
An example I've been using a lot lately, but but I do like it because it kind of explains the power of data. Even things like weather triggered ads on TV, right? Like if, if you're a clothing brand and maybe where you are, it's super sunny, uh, where I am, maybe it's rainy. That same clothing brand can serve you an ad that's relevant for sunny times. Here's some clothing that keeps you cool. For me, here's some clothing that keeps you dry. And a brand like that can maintain national scale while always maintaining hyper relevance of their messaging and connected TV affords this. So, you know, all of those things are really what I mean when I say CTV is not your grandmother's TV. Amazing stuff, Tony. So talk about the lead time for some of this stuff. You're on the inside of one of the leading electronic innovators, manufacturers, designers in the world the lead time for whatever that next generation and that also of course means where lg ad solutions is going housed in that not your grandmother's television how many years out in advance are there things that you're seeing now that we as consumers won't see until 2005 six seven eight what's that window and lead time if you will and sort of take us behind the techn technological innovation curtain yeah, I mean, firstly, I'd say that's a bullseye of a question. It's a great question. It's also a somewhat tricky one to answer on the record, but I'll, I'll do my best because um, when we talk about our innovation roadmap, of course, you you sort of have different time horizons. So there's your innovation over the coming year. What are we doing in Q1, 2, 3, 4? There's your medium term innovation. And then there's sort of like uh, blue sky thinking beyond that. And we engage in all of those things. Now, obviously, you know, there's an urgency to the here and now. But and, and I know you're asking me this in the context of a company level, but I, I would say even on a personal level, I've always been really into this concept of the Eisenhower matrix. I'm sure you're familiar. Um, for any of your listeners who aren't, it's the, it's the world's simplest two by two, um, often used for assigning how you will put your effort into things. So um, on one axis, you have important, less important. On another axis, you have time urgent, less time urgent. And a couple of those boxes are obvious. Like if it's not important and it's not urgent, you cut it. I think most of us recognize that. If it's very important and very urgent, most of us know, okay, jump on that. That's a P0 thing. But I think it's really the other two boxes where things become a little tricky. I think a lot of people get tripped up for things that have time urgency, but no importance. And they, they tend to do those. And things that are really important, but don't have a time urgency to them. And that could be something like your own investing in your own professional development. That's something that tends to fall to the wayside. And if you don't specifically carve out time, and that could just be as simple as blocking it out in your calendar, it tends to not happen. And so I, I do a daily and a weekly exercise just for my own to-do list. And then at a company level, um, for the companies that I've been involved in, I try to encourage an approach where we consider those really important things where there's not an urgent time driver to it. Um, and I think like that that philosophy, while I'm not sort of talking specifics, I think serves us well, where we're forced to think more strategically, forced to think about what are the needs of the consumer in two, three, four, five plus years from now. And I do believe we're entering an extraordinarily transformational phase. Like even it's hard to talk about uh, this kind of planning without mentioning artificial intelligence. Like over the last year, generative AI has transformed the way we work on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, ChatGPT consumes a lot, lot of oxygen in the room. It's just Certainly for what we do, it's just become a part of our daily lives. And it starts to become so rapidly advancing, it becomes difficult to predict. Like, I think we might have the ability to predict where it will be in one year, 
Where will it be in two years? But there's a bigger question mark. Where will it be in three years? I don't know. Four plus years, arguably impossible to predict. And it's it's evolving so rapidly. And so I think you've got all of these factors, but if you at least try to carve out time to be strategic, to be bigger thinking, then you will. It's a great answer. And and you touch on AI, you know, it, it's certainly affecting everything as we all try to figure out what it means, you know, on a very fundamental level. It seems like that old notion, I guess it goes back to Moore's law about the pace of, you know, technological driven change. I read something interesting about the EU is sort of trying to get ahead of uh, regulation and setting forth some ground rules for AI, you know, thinking at the time they were very progressive. This goes back to, I think, 2021. And at that time, they were determined to get ahead of it. You know, widespread concerns about, you know, Bond villain-esque implications of AI. And uh, they passed these regulations, which they all view as very progressive at that time. And it did not foresee, you know, chat GPT. And so all these regulations were written. And now obviously there's the Google version and there's this version and that version. It seems like that pace of technologically driven change, whether it's, you know, what's happening on the screen, where the screens are going. I mean, the thought of, you know, LG screens going in automobiles, you know, that's mind blowing, but it's got to be really exciting to be at a place that's driving a lot of that pace of change. Oh yeah. It's cool. Like, so from an advertising perspective, I think that, that AI in the immediate term will transform segmentation. I think AI will be able to, will sort of currently is, and will continue to increase its capability here, but be able to create these intelligent segments that are more likely to convert, more likely to resonate. But we as humans may not really understand what is it that makes that unifies this segment. It won't be as simple as men 21 to, to 54. It will be much more complex. Um, I also think the creative process is one that is already, we do this right now, but has already been dramatically sped up. The, the proficiency of some of these creative AI tools helps humans get to things like campaign creative much, much more quickly. But I think it's really outside of our industry where you start to see the power of where this is going. Like, so for example, the, the, there was a um, there was a, a paper published out of the University of California where they had they have this AI model that is essentially reading MRI scans, um, MRI scans specifically for trying to detect Alzheimer's, and they essentially found that the AI could detect. Alzheimer's six years before a human technician and do so with a comparable degree of accuracy. So it's just as accurate, but it's doing it six years earlier. And this is only an early model. So like in medicine, if you could have an AI assisted doctor or a completely AI doctor that just simply does a better, faster job with early detection. And we know like for health, that's, that's an incredible advantage to have, um, you know, in, in a battle against any ailment. That's mind blowing. Uh, I mean, I also think about, uh, and it, this is something, it's been a while since I've spoken about this, but I used to talk about this a lot. Um, if, if you think about some of the powerhouses of the world within AI and what they've done, like Google, you probably remember when they had built, um, oh, what did they call it? Alpha, Alpha Go. So they built their AI to play this game Go, which is widely accepted as the most complex game in humanity, has an infinite number of moves. They trained it with human training data. It played the world champion and it beat the world champion. We were like, hooray, this algorithm works. But 
the thing that always captured my attention is sometime later they created a second version of this AlphaGo. They called it AlphaGo Zero. And this time, instead of feeding it training data from human games, they essentially just gave it the basics of the rules of the game and forced it to play itself over countless times, possibly billions of times. It just played and played and played until it understood the game. And then what they did is they pitted the original AlphaGo, which beat the best of the best in the world, against AlphaGo Zero in a 100-game matchup, and the new one beat it 100 to zip. And I think this is, I love this story because it helps us understand that we don't understand it. When it, when we when we are the source of this AI's intelligence, it does a great job, but when it just goes its own way and it uses its own intelligence, this, this non-human training data, it does exponentially better. And I think, you know, I only share that story to say, like where a lot of us are crystal balling around AI, but the real answer is we don't really know where it's going because it is literally by definition beyond our intellectual comprehension. Yeah, I, I just, uh, uh, as a layman about this stuff, I just worry about the Bond villain scenario. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I love this uh, conversation, Tony. It's great to see you and to catch up. Uh, I love what you're doing at LG Ad Solutions, and we should absolutely stay in touch. I'm sure love to get you back on our stage. I love, you know, your thought leadership background. And when we got to work together at Yahoo, you really know your way around that race course too. And I think we could have a lot of fun together, you know, at Advertising Week around the world going forward. And that would be a joy to be in your company uh, more. We could talk about the who and uh, whatever else comes up, old pal. Right on. But Matt, just so good to see you. Um, it's been a pleasure to be able to chat and let's definitely stay in touch.